You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 135 of Take a Bow. I'm your host, Eli Tokash, and this week we have a very, very exciting episode, perhaps maybe the most anticipated episode slash guest that we've had on the podcast, if not the first, definitely like top two, top three for sure. I'm very excited about this week's episode, and I know that you all are going to love this week's episode. It's with Diane Paulus. I mean, what more needs to be said? For those of you who don't know, Diane Paulus was my director in both Pippin and Finding Neverland, but she's also directed so many other incredible things. She's currently uh, the director of 1776, which is currently on Broadway and closing the first pretty much week of January on January 8th. So go check that out. And uh, she's also directed, you know, Waitress, Hair, all of these wonderful shows that uh, are probably one of your favorite shows if you're listening to this podcast, Um, Big Waitress guy obviously finding neverland and pippin i was in so that has a very special place in my heart just an incredible episode it was so great to talk to diane again and it was such a wonderful treat around this holiday time Uh, it felt like the perfect holiday present for for me and uh hopefully for all of you as well and hopefully you all will enjoy this week's episode as much as i did we only got a limited amount of time she's a busy lady got a lot on her schedule and on on her plate but i was thrilled to have just any time with her to to talk about all the things and she's got a very interesting story and uh she said that around two maybe in the future so hoping for that stay tuned for that because I think that after you listen to this week's episode, y'all are going to want more just as much as I do from Diane. Um, So hopefully 2023 has uh, something fun in store for sure. Uh, Well, I know it has a lot of fun in store actually, because starting to plan it and it's, it's been going pretty well. So I'm excited. Anyways, before we turn it over to this week's episode, I know that y'all are dying to hear from me and Diane, but I got to talk to you about some Broadway news. There's lots going on, actually, in the Broadway world. Just crazy stories, honestly, around the industry. 16, believe it or not, 16 Broadway shows are going to be closing within the next two months, which is literally, if you think about it, there's currently 35 shows performing on Broadway right now. It's about half the shows. Uh, It's actually about 45% of the shows. But it's it's pretty close to 50%. So like, I I don't know, it's just a crazy stat that it seems like so many shows just opened. I mean, you got you all listened to to some of those red carpet opening nights and, and what that was like and who was there and um, from creative team and all the things. So it, it seems like it was a busy couple weeks and months for, for Broadway, but uh, it, it's not slowing down anytime soon. Um, that's the beautiful thing about this industry. There's always something rotating. So um, 
crazy stat there that 16 Broadway shows are closing within the next two months. Uh, January's got a crazy schedule, especially the first two weeks. There were seven Broadway shows closing in two weeks, which is wild. So um, stay tuned for all that. And go check out those shows that you know that you haven't seen yet that you've been wanting to see because when a show closes i experienced it with ain't no mo and uh, a few other shows already this season that i it shows that i really wanted to see but i didn't get to and now i really really regret it so go check those out at beetlejuice 1776 music man there's so many shows closing almost famous in the first couple weeks that you don't want to miss so um hopefully i'll get to almost famous and to the other shows that i haven't seen and uh, we'll be able to talk about it here on the podcast to make you all feel like you were at the show. Another crazy stat here, and I just wanted to recognize and applaud everyone involved uh, within Aladdin on Broadway. So I had, for those of you who are loyal listeners, I know there's a lot of new folks. So hi, everyone. Thanks for joining in on the fun. But for all of my OGs, I guess, you know, you know that we had the original Aladdin, Adam Jacobs, and the original Genie. I think we've had a couple Genies, actually. If not, we've definitely tried to but we definitely had adam jacobs and james monroe eigelhart incredible performers and what they did to open this show i feel like has been uh, a big reason of their success uh, of aladdin uh, here on broadway but they just celebrated three thousand shows and that's an incredible milestone pretty unheard of to be honest it's very rare here on broadway to last over two years but if you boil it down There's 416 performances uh, happening a year if you're in a Broadway show. You do 416 performances in 365 days. That being said... That's over seven years running on Broadway. So that's that's pretty incredible. I mean, that puts you in the rankings of, you know, Wicked and Chicago and Phantom of these shows that can have a long impact and a long run here on Broadway. It's just incredible. So shout out to, to everyone involved in Aladdin and uh, congratulations to everyone. Seriously. So very exciting stuff there. I just wanted to shout that out and recognize them because it blew me away. I was like seven years. That's crazy. I didn't. It doesn't feel like that long. I remember when Aladdin came on Broadway, but uh, 3,000 shows later and in the New Amsterdam theater, that's a hard theater to sell. It's a big theater. So to be doing it in that and and to continue to succeed and have the success that they're having is, is quite incredible. So uh, congrats again. Moving on, another crazy story here, uh, which is a bit of a sadder one, honestly. Alex Brightman is currently out of Beetlejuice indefinitely due to suffering a concussion during a performance. This is heartbreaking. I mean, the show closes January 8th, and um, it was announced a couple days ago that this occurred uh, during a show, and it didn't specify like what exactly happened but uh he broke the news on his instagram he shared it with everyone and just was like hey gonna be out it's heartbreaking that this show is closing and he is missing out on some of these final performances but we here at take a bow and i'm sure everyone all of you listening in this theater industry is sending their best wishes and our best wishes to him 
and uh, hoping for a speedy recovery so that he can finish up this run in Beetlejuice, something that uh, he's really been incredible for and, and the leader for so uh, of their success. So shout out to Alex Brightman. Hopefully you get back up there soon and, and everything is okay and you get cleared. I know Alex, he's not going to miss a performance if he can do it. So um, hopefully he gets that clearance from his doctors and and they allow him to at least do the final show. Seriously, but uh, I'm glad he's listening to the doctors and, and taking care of himself so uh, he can fully recover. So sending our best again and we'll keep you all updated because it's, it's not fun to not close out a show that you've put your blood, sweat, and tears in for over five years, like through the pandemic, of course, but he's he's really been the forefront of that musical, and I know he definitely wants to close out the show if he can, so... Shout out to Alex Brightman and uh, feel better soon. So another thing, just to move it back to a happier place before we turn it over to the interview, I saw the Matilda movie this weekend. Are we calling it the Matilda the musical the movie or are we calling it Matilda movie? I don't know. There's a lot. I, I, I know there's like a couple Matilda movies. Anyways, I saw the Matilda musical movie this weekend, uh, just this week, I guess, a couple days ago, honestly, it was like yesterday. Um, and it's fantastic. I mean, the colors, it's so visually pleasing. And then of course, to hear these songs again, that had had just such success here on Broadway and was always in my head. And now here they are again, like back in my head, watching the show is nostalgic for so many ways. Actually, a quick story real quick. I was offered a role in Matilda the musical when it was on Broadway while I was in Finding Neverland, but it was at the time where Aiden Jem was leaving the show and I was stepping in as Peter. So I was offered, I believe, Tallboy Swing. And then I was like, no, I think I'm going to stay in Neverland so I can, because I'll perform a little bit more. And then they were like, okay, what about Bruce? And then I was like, considering it and then neverland came to me with peter and uh so i stayed in in neverland with uh with you know a family my family i wasn't gonna leave my family so um it was nostalgic but in a way that like you know i wasn't in the show but the show i saw a million times because all my friends were in the show It, it holds a special place in my heart just because of you know, it's it's a classic. It's a classic book. It's a classic musical here on Broadway, and it's so good. So to watch the movie here again was so fun. And uh, the way that they were able to do it, the cinematography is incredible. The, the girl who plays Matilda is fantastic. She's so cute. She's so good. Wonderful acting. The, even her singing is brilliant. This is the rise of, of her for sure. And uh, the whole show, the the ensemble of the kids were great. It was cool to see kids, you know, being kids. Like, it wasn't on Broadway. I mean, you literally had these 35-year-old adults playing kids in this in this show so to to see you know kids their age and in middle school it was it was great to see so um shout out to alicia weir who plays matilda in this movie she's incredible and shout out to emma thompson i mean this performance from her as miss trunchbull is just ridiculous um she's so fantastic and uh, no surprise there but uh she does it again and uh huge shout out to everyone involved in that making it a huge success because uh 
it's cool to see Matilda in a musical form. And you know me, I, I'm a big movie musical guy because when we get a when we break that stereotype of oh, it's a musical and it's something that's really good, it gets more people interested in musicals and in Broadway and all the things. So I'm thrilled to be seeing uh, a musical being represented in such a wonderful way up in Hollywood. So it's great to see from our perspective and uh, awesome movie. So go check it out. It's on Netflix. It dropped during um, Christmas. So go check that out if you haven't already. It's, it's definitely worth the watch. One quick little note about Take a Bow before we send it over to the interview. I do want to mention that we did upload some of our red carpet specials that we have, uh, that we've been able to attend and collect content from. Uh, we have Ohio State Murders, we have Anne Juliet, and we have Some Like It Hot. Very, very exciting stuff for all of them. Ohio State Murders is really a really cool one because it's got this wonderful speech that I mentioned in last week's episode from the director, Kenny Leone, from his curtain call. Uh, after the performance, he came out and spoke of the importance of theater right now and supporting the arts. So everyone should definitely go check that out. These these videos, by the way, these episodes and stuff, they're, they're probably about 20 minutes. So it's something that you could do while you're cleaning your room. You could listen to it while you're in the car. It is video, so it may be more fun to watch, but it's something you can watch in the shower. Like do It's just fun stuff to put on in the background with stuff that you're doing or just you're trying to go to sleep i'll put you to sleep don't worry um no it's it's great stuff so go check that out it's on the youtube page and uh we're gonna be doing a very very cool uh little video here of a 2022 recap so we're gonna be recapping uh some of our favorite moments throughout the year highlighting all of our guests from this year and we're gonna be just saying thanks to to all of you for listening and to tuning in and and making this thing happen you know uh top 10 podcast is uh pretty cool for me. So hopefully next year we'll be in the top 5%, maybe in the top 1% even. Uh, I don't know. We're going to see. Uh, <laughs> just keep keep listening and keep telling your friends and maybe uh, we'll end up getting there. So uh, um, all right, enough of me talking. Um, let's turn it over to Diane Paulus. Diane Paulus gives us an incredible interview talking all things about 1776. Um, we talk a little bit about Pippin and Finding Neverland, um, and, but we really, really dive into her story as a director and what inspires her and what kind of work inspires her and how she got to where she is and how you start to become a director and all of these things. It's really, really uh, incredible. And to hear what really means a lot to her and what she finds so impactful um, as an artist and storyteller and all the things of how she gets on board with all of these incredible shows that have beautiful messages such as 1776 and Jagged Little Pill and all of these wonderful waitress and the way that she's leading the way as a female in the industry, having female uh, creative teams and, and a very diverse group of performers always in, in creative teams and all the things. So really cool to see you. We talk all about that. So without further ado, here she is, Diane Paulus, curtain up. <laughs> That was so fun to say. I don't even know how to begin this. This is, there's too many words that I, I can say here. Just by the title of this episode, everyone listening to this knows that uh, this is a dream guest of mine and it'll be a great episode for sure. You're probably the most talked about person on this podcast, actually, with the cast members that I brought on and they're all from your shows because, you know, those are the shows that I've done. And uh, she's directed, if you listen to this, definitely one of your favorite musicals. She's done Waitress, Jagged Little 
pill, the Gershwin, Porgy, and Bess hair, currently 1776. And of course, Pippin and Fighting Neverland. She's pretty much the reason we're all here today and everyone's listening to this podcast. So everyone, it is my honor to welcome to Take a Bow, the one and only Diane Paulus. Hi, Diane. Hi, I am so excited to be here. And oh my especially gosh. because of our personal history. Oh yeah. That that goes back to to Pippin and Finding Neverland. And I was that the first time we met on uh, for the opening night of um met again, I should say, the opening night of 1776. Yeah. Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. After the and, Finding and Neverland closing, that was definitely the the first time. That was I saw the next time. Yes. And I was like, oh my god. God, you're all grown up and <laughs> look so impressive. And, oh, um, you so know, sweet. just f- reflecting back on um, how amazing you were. So, you know, <laughs> I'm so excited to be here just to speak with you in particular. So all, all, all happiness today. You don't know how much that means to me, truly, because you are by far like anyone I talk to, I always bring you up, you know, you're, you are someone who like I wouldn't even be in New York if it wasn't for you, you know. Like you are someone I didn't live here. I was lived in West Virginia, and you took a shot on a kid from West Virginia to uh, be in Pippin, and then you brought me over to Neverland, and it was just uh, forever grateful for you and everything that you've done for for my life and um, the impact that you've had on it. So I, this is an absolute treat for me, and I appreciate you giving me your time today to talk to me. Of course. Um, yeah. Well, the way I usually like to start these things is like, you know, going back to the beginning and just talking about what it was that like inspired you to want to become a theater maker and what got you interested in this world that we live in and in, in directing and all the things. I was always exposed to the arts. Um through my family, like since I was a little girl, um, my dad had been an actor and actually he was then later directing plays for the army entertainment Corps during the American occupation of Japan, which is where he met my mother, uh, who was Japanese and my mother's family, uh, history connected back to the invention of the revolving stage in Japan, I think it was her great grandfather or someone in the family. So there, there's been theater in my family for years. It feels like, and my older sister is a musician. I have an older sister who's 11 years older than I am, and so she plays the harp. So I grew up with a harp, you know, in our living room when I was three <laughs> years old, and um, and and so I, I think my my parents just really appreciated um, what what culture was and it, it, it was always part of our lives mm-hmm. going to the theater going to the opera listening to music uh so in a way that was what i knew that was that was very much um wow. my world so when i was a kid growing up in new york city i danced with the new york city ballet and i did all the ballets that had kids in them uh so that was nutcracker coppelia harlequinade uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, that was when Balanchine was still alive. So I just remember being, you know, 10 years old and standing on, you know, what was then called the New York State Theater and and experiencing story ballets, right? Because that's what Balanchine was such a genius at. And all those, all the ballets that had kids in them were story ballets. So I just had exposure to all of the arts. Um, And, and, because I was a dancer and I studied piano as a kid, 
I was also very musical. So the idea of being able to harness dance and and music and my ability to read music and feel music, um, I think all synthesized for me in in my love of musical theater. Yeah. So I do credit so much of where I am today as an artist with, you know, my family and what they exposed me to and what I had an opportunity to experience as a kid. Um, I should say in high school, I really was uh, dedicated to politics oh. and I was super active. I was uh, lobbying in Albany for Plant Parenthood as a high schooler oh and marching for nuclear disarmament um, and marching for the ERA movement. This is in the early 80s. I and I went that. to college, yeah. you know, thinking, okay, I'm going to go into government and politics. And I spent the first summer after my freshman year at college interning for um, Ruth Messenger, who was then the New York wow. um, city council member from the Upper West sure, Side. Sure, sure. And then I had, to make a long story short, an epiphany that as much as I appreciated politics, what I really loved, what I loved to do morning, noon, and night was the theater. Yeah. And and then if I had to ask myself, you know, what it was a very simple question, like, what would you not care uh, if you had to stay up all night doing? Because, you know, I was pretty good at school. I knew how to, you know, work very hard, <laughs> pull all nighters, you know, in college. Oh, yeah. It was always, you know, it was always like a drag. But then like, <laughs> give me a rehearsal process that would go all night long. I would never question it. It would be just, you know, complete. Uh, presence and excitement about being in the theater for endless amount of hours. So yeah. I, I I did look inside my soul and I thought, you know, the theater is something that your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Not only I find, uh, you know, physically and, um, and emotionally and psychologically challenging and stimulating, but also intellectually rigorous. And, and mm. so I was, and, and, and what I was excited about in terms of politics, I think, in terms of bringing people together and um, doing things as a group that only a group can accomplish, right? Right. That, that, that whole art of what, what can you do as a group? What is possible? You know, what, what is something that no one person could do on the own on their own, but, but as a group you can do, I think for all those reasons, um, I, I landed in the theater and have, have continued to, to stay here 
<laughs> well, thank goodness, because I think it's worked out. <laughs> um, when did you decide the whole directing path was was more your route as a mm. as someone who has a history of like, you know, being a young performer in ballet? I think like so many people, I started out wanting to be an actor and I I went to an acting program called the New Actors Workshop, which was mm -hmm. just starting after when I graduated college. And I went, it was a two-year training program. And I loved it because the school was just being founded. So it was yeah. like you were on the ground floor of the whole experiment of the school. And my teachers were, um, they've all passed away now, uh, Mike Nichols, the amazing film and theater director, Paul Sills, the founder wow. of Improvisation for the Theater and uh, Second City in Chicago, and George Morrison, who was an amazing um, uh, method teacher. Um, so it was just an acting school. So we were learning acting, and I was like a sponge, uh -huh. soaking up all these different techniques. But what I realized is I was learning um, about directing. And I was learning about how to break down a scene, how to tell a story. And Mike Nichols, who was a was a huge influence on me in that school, in a way dealt with us as, as actors, but he was really demonstrating how he would direct, how he would work with actors, how he would analyze the event of a scene. Wow. What are the choices you make to help tell the story of the scene? So all of these tools I was getting as an actor, um, I think I was, I was logging in my brain um, as, as, as tools for the toolkit of being a director and when I first got, you know, got out of uh, this acting program, I started directing because I was very uh, entrepreneurial and I wanted to make work. I didn't want to wait around for an audition. So I just started directing. Right. I started directing with my acting classmates in found locations, like an abandoned lot on, on 89th Street, which had been converted into a community garden. It still oh, exists wow. it's between Amsterdam and Columbus. And I walked through it one day and I thought, okay, this could be a beautiful little amphitheater. So I inquired about doing a show there and oh, wow. I directed Twelfth Night there with the oh, one caveat that, you know, couldn't couldn't um, prevent anybody from gardening while we were doing the show, which I right. thought was a great challenge. If I could make the play interesting enough, everybody would put down their shovels and watch the play. So, but it was really grassroots is what I'm saying. It was, it was, I was doing shows for free. I started working um, on the Lower East Side, yeah, on Ludlow Street. Um, my now husband and partner Randy Weiner and I uh, created the first version of the Donkey Show downtown. You know, sure. Working at that point with uh, friends of mine that had graduated from Columbia School of the Arts, where I eventually went to get my master's in directing. Um, but everything was very grassroots, very um, let's make a show, very much you know how do we figure out to get an audience to see things. Sure. So I think my whole orientation as a director has been, why would anyone want to come and see your show? <laughs> right. It wasn't just like, oh, I want to direct. It was like, no, I want to make something that people want to see. So I've always been interested in the role the audience plays. And and that's been such a uh, animating piece for me. And everything I've done is, you know, what is this next creation of theater who is it for? And why right. would anyone care? Why does it matter? You know, and I think I grew up at a time in, in the institutional theater, at least, where so much audience had stopped going to the theater, right? Right. There was this um, kind of trend of like, the audience has left the building. 
people don't want culture anymore. You know, <laughs> we're, a, we're a depraved society. People would rather watch things, you know, on the internet or on their telephones, or it was even before all of that, actually. <laughs> it was this feeling of there's no more attention span, right? Um, sure. And, and subscriptions in a traditional sense had gone really down at regional theaters across the country. And right. I think I just always felt like, why are we blaming the audience? Like, why aren't we as the creators and producers of theater thinking about what is it we need to produce that will get that next generation audience that will make theater feel relevant and powerful and like the must see experience. Absolutely. So, you know, I think I gravitated to directing because I I could I could have more of a say in all that. You know, I mean I, I I worship at the shrine of 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 actors because it's they are the vessels, actors are like shamans in my opinion. But I got more interested in crafting the whole experience. Right. And 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 curating, you know, not only the play on the stage, but you know, ultimately what happens before and after. And that's been a lot of my focus, even in the work I've done in the theater, but especially up at ART, where I'm the artistic yeah. director now. Oh my God, ART, what a place. Everyone knows ART. Um, I have to ask you though, because it, it came to like mine. I mean, this industry is, um, especially like in the directing world, like we are starting to see more female directors, but when you were a young girl and, and you had to, you know, direct a show of Twelfth Night as like a female doing that, you know, like, what was it like just like to go through this industry as a female director trying to like, you know, make it? I think I, uh, you know, in answer to that, I had really amazing role models who mm -hmm. were women. Um, and so when I thought about, um, you know, I, I had amazing role models who were women. And so when I looked out of the field, I was looking at, Anne Bogard and Joanne Acolytis and Julie Taymor. Um, and in the producing world, Lynn Austin, uh, the late great Lynn Austin, who ran Music Theater Group with Diane Wondersford. I mean, they were all women. Yeah. Um, so I think I was I was lucky that I came from a generation. There was, you know, one generation ahead of me who were literally told, you can't be a director as a woman. You know, like right. my 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 dear colleague Emily Mann, who I worked on um Gloria, a life with you know, she would tell me stories of being told, no, you can't be a director. You know, you're a woman, maybe right. children's theater. But I think when I came of age in the theater, there were people who were women who were directors. Right. So I had that visualization. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough. I went to an all girls school here in New York for 13 years and we were trained that yeah. to think and, and, and live and realize that women can do anything, you know, from, from age six on, you know, it was all, all women. So it was very empowering. So I really credit that education with feeling like there was nothing about directing. Right. That would, you know, was not, was not possible for me. And as I got more involved um, in, you know, uh, I mean, directing Twelfth Night for free on a community garden is one thing. When I started directing uh, shows that were transferring to Broadway, I also felt empowered because I knew the demographics of ticket buyers were largely women. Yeah. So I really thought as I as I hit my stride in in my late 30s and 40s as a woman director in the commercial theater, I felt, well, I represent the chief ticking ticket buying demographic. Yeah. So I think I I I have a point of view that is valuable and that 
um, and I cared actually as a director uh, about the producing, about things like the budget, about the marketing. Sure. And I think that's because I, I came of age as a director when you really had to be an entrepreneur to, to find your way. You had to um, be a producer, a director. You know, there was no one who was going to come to you and say, oh, you're a young director here. <laughs> I give you I give you your first chance. I mean, you had to be scrappy. You had to make it work. You had to find audience. Wow. So I think uh the as you say, Eli, the field is getting better. There are um more women who are visibly um give, being given shots and directing. And there are certainly more women in the last five years who've gotten leadership roles yeah. in the institutional not-for-profit theater, but we still have a long way to go. So um I think the needle is moving um but slowly, but but it's progress is being made. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk to you about, you know, I mean, staying kind of along this conversation and topic that we're having, what it was like, I know with your history and politics and everything, you must have jumped at the opportunity to do a show in the way that you are currently doing it, like 1776, and even a show like Jagged Little Pill that deals mm. with um, those conversations and opens up those conversations for audience members. Did those kind of pieces just excite you in a way that like, you know, it's hard to like turn down or even to like kind of wrap your head around the fact that mm. you are able to work with it? Yeah. You know, every project you take on, um, I, I, I really have this gut check response to because I, I know now how hard it is and how much work it takes. So I really will only take on a project if I, if I sense the potential. Um, and I mm. think that's really what directors do. They sense the potential of something, uh, which is, is, is important to remember, you know, the directors aren't the ones with the answers. We're the ones that are sensing the potential right. and then gathering people and teams, which, you know, are writers, composers, music directors, choreographers, and then designers and actors. I mean, the, the whole village that you build as a director to help you unlock that potential. And um, of course, Jagged and 1776 are so, so vastly different, but um, they both had that sense of potential for me. Jagged Little Pill, I knew the album, I knew the music. Of course. And I had a very strong gut of the kind of powerful visceral theatrical event I could create using that music. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what was so exciting in that journey was getting to know Alanis and learning from her and learning about all the things that matter to her as an artist over many, many years, not, not just when she wrote the album, when she was a you know late teenager, but what she's done in her life since then. And, um, you know, the, 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 the topics of vulnerability and trauma and healing for trauma. And then, uh, you know, ultimately our story that at its core is about sexual assault, right? And there are many other issues that surround that, but at the core of Jagged Little Pill is sexual assault, which is right. personal to Alanis. And so working with Alanis and Diablo Cody, the book writer, to create a new story, right? That was Alanis's one um, requirement. This was not going to be a biopic right. about her. She wanted an original contemporary story. And, and Diablo was such a genius at uh, working on creating a story 
that sewed together all of Alanis's stories, which us uh, all of Alanis's songs, which were were like the urtext for us. You know, they were the 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 album was the holy grail. You know, yeah. we were trying to figure out how to tell a story that would allow these songs to live on the stage and and her her just her the you know the cathedral of ideas that are in Alanis's songs. Right. Um. So that that was thrilling in 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 that way because it was. Um, such a contemporary new musical, but accessing this music that people and audiences have a relationship to, which was so powerful to touch, right? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I just have to say, working with City Larby Chikawi, the choreographer for that was just a groundbreaking experience for me. I mean, the way we worked together uh, was one of the most fulfilling artistic collaborations I've had in my whole career was with him. Aww. So, um, you know, uh, and and then you turn to something like 1776, which I didn't really know, except that it had beat hair for the Tony in 1969 <laughs> because yeah. I knew hair very well. And I thought, you know, and I, and I heard about 1776, like it was sort of, you know, the Hamilton before there was Hamilton in terms of, <laughs> A musical telling, you know, a, a story about American history. Right. But when I read it, I was so blown away by the book of the show. And again, the potential of that musical to speak to our current times. And and that's what got me so excited about doing this revival that is, is on Broadway now um, in a production I co-directed with Jeffrey Page, uh, who also choreographed it. Um, so, so, so 7076, um, more like, uh, you know, Pippin and the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, you know, a, a flexing the muscles of doing a revival. Right. Um, which is, is, is asking, you know, what was the show when it was created? What is the meaning of this show now? Um, and this particular revival came into my hands um, with knowledge from the estates of Peter Stone and Sherman Edwards that non-traditional casting would be embraced. Wow. So when I first read um, the script of 7076, I had that in my mind. And frankly, it was the only way I thought it could be done um, yeah. was to, to, to capture um, not only the history from the past, but to embrace at the same moment um, the America we're living in today. Absolutely. I, it's so funny because I actually, I talked to Jeffrey on this and, you know, I just told him, you know, when you're up there, when you're as an audience member watching the show, you kind of forget that it's like crazy for women to be in power at that time. You fully get lost in the story that the actors and performers are are putting out there and the work that they're doing. And, and that's definitely a testament to the direction of the musical, of course, um, right at Beginning where they step into the shoes of the founding fathers or whatever you would like to call them. And it was just so brilliant. The whole, the whole piece and, and the way that you all reimagined it is so it's beautiful, really. And, and like you said, modern day America, it's so it's really, really well done. I, I loved the show. I'm a big fan of the show. So congrats on that for sure. Well, well, thank you. And I, I love that you speak about the stepping in the shoes because that was so that was so critical to the conception of the musical was not that we had just cast this extraordinary group of people, uh, you know, alive in 2020 at the time it was 2020. And then finally 2022, when we actually got to do the show because of the pandemic delay, but it, but it wasn't just about the casting. It was about actually a conceptual frame mm. that we were um, 
including in the production, which was, yes, look at this cast, this company that is alive today in all of their representation across yeah. race, ethnicity, gender, identification as female, trans, non-binary, right? And now they, like an acting troupe would do, are going to step into the ritual enactment of the story. They right. are going to put on the shoes. They are going to put on the costumes. And as a result, Jeffrey and I were so dedicated to saying to the audience, what you're watching is theater. Um, yes, you might get lost in the story. Yes, you're going to start to see all, all these people as Ben Franklin and John Adams and these historical figures you, you know, but you will not lose the present day actor in it. Right. So that what, what we're really asking the audience to um, reckon with is the historical figures of the past at, at the same time, you are embracing and acknowledging um, a diversity in America that defines our country today. So how can you hold those two together? How does it make you look at the history? How does it make you look forward from that moment um, with all its compromise and, frankly, its aspiration and dreams and radicalness? which mm -hmm. it was radical to break away from Mother England, and yet what were the compromises made? Who was not allowed in that room? Right. Um, which in a way we, 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 um, we can feel by the presence of America today butting up against that history so that we understand it's not that that history was then and we are now, they are connected and and we are connected right uh even Absolutely. though the very people who are telling the story of history now were not part of that history then right and and you add on to, to on top of that you don't have them in these gray wigs or you don't have them looking like Ben Franklin or anything like that. They are their raw natural selves. I mean, right. All races, you pregnant, any, anything like <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. I know it, you, I loved seeing it as an audience member. Truly. It was just, it, it, it brought out a new element to it that it was just like, you know, these people were human, you know, like they're not like some praise yes. people that are in our history books that we like, you know, think they're the greatest people ever. They're, they're human and they're not their best people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, I think that was in the original, you know, Peter Stone and Sherman Edwards original, you know, 69 production was to kind of knock down the founding fathers from this mythic status right. and, and make them make them human men, right? Yeah. Um that that that's in the impulse of the piece already because um it it you know they're they're squabbling about the flies and the heat and it's sure. you know it 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 they're 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 you know arguing with each other and it's it it they're not perfect, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um and of course you know Peter Stone puts in this incredible um uh, debate over this slavery clause that mm. Jefferson wrote in the original draft, right? Um, and and the act which is dramatized in the musical is 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 cutting it out for the sake of unanimity. Um, you know this this great 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 compromise which which Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Is is such a strong um, indicator of, of why we are where we are, that this issue was shoved under the rug. Um, right. at, fr- frankly, would say independence first, right? That was his argument. Um, but we know, and, and in fact, I was just saying to someone, John Adams has a quote that is something along the lines, if we do this, and make this compromise. A hundred years from now, we will pay for it. Um, and Peter right. Stone wrote that he literally couldn't quote Adams because it would seem too ridiculous that he, you know, he, 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 no one would believe that Adams actually said that, and right. it would feel like you know, too, 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 maybe too nicely, neatly <laughs> put together by Peter Stone. So he's like, even though that's the most incredible quote, Adams was completely prescient when he said that. Yeah. I couldn't, I could not include that line in the in the in the in the show. Wow. Um, Fascinating. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it, it. You know, I think to go back to your question about you know what it is to do these shows. I think I'm always interested in what a show will unlock. Yeah. You know, and Jagged Little Pill is out touring now in the country, and the conversations that um, I hope it's uh, stimulating pe- for people to see themselves, to recognize themselves, or a loved one, or a friend, or a family member. And to see um, tough subjects, but done, you know, not in another kind of like newspaper article or, you know, grueling media story, but rather through musical theater right? in, in, in a longer form where we can identify with characters and, and through song and, and go through this, this cathartic experience that is a musical, which you know so well. I mean, musicals do special things. They they they, they, they hit your heart as well as your mind, you know. They also just like they they're safe space, you know. I think that's what I've loved most about theater is that they open up the conversations that you don't want to have with your family or with a loved one or whatever. But you're able to go to the theater and you're able to listen to those conversations and kind of spark those conversations of like, oh my God, we're dealing with that right now can we talk about it? You know, like so many times my family, I've gone to the theater and it's just like, we've been avoiding this conversation and it's like, I guess now's the time to have it. Right. But, and I think exactly it's, that's the best part about it for sure. I would be remiss if I don't talk to you about finding Neverland or Pippin. And I know we don't have much time left. So I want to 
change the topic over to that. Finding Neverland, it's literally my favorite show that I've ever been a part of. Um, I was did both the Broadway and then I went on tour for with it in the beginning for a little bit. Um, just it's so, so beautiful and everything about it, the way that it was crafted and the way that uh it, you find the sense of family on the stage and um you know Peter Pan's just iconic as is so it was a big part of my childhood and um all of that so what was it like when you were able to get your hands on Finding Neverland and uh, starting at ART and then bringing it to Broadway and just the whole journey of uh you know finding Neverland <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it, it was it was such a joy to work um, with Gary Barlow and Elliot Kennedy and James Graham. They were all such amazing um, collaborators. It was such a, a joyful collaboration through and through. And Anne-Marie Malazzo who did the vocal arrangements, Mia Michaels on the choreography. <laughs> and, and of course, um, I just, I have had such a long time partnership with Scott Pask who did Pippin as well, Yeah, you know, and, and I'll just never forget um thinking about uh the the moment um in finding neverland when um the mother sylvia you know is 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 passing you know to the other world right? oh yeah and 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 to me that that was the moment um of actual magical flight as much yeah. as peter pan was you know, a, a character that we all know and love, of course, Finding Neverland is about the creation of Peter Pan. So we would have to deal with, you know, the flying of the, of how they did it in the production sort of as a behind the scenes theater moment. Right. And, you know, in many ways, Finding Neverland was just a love letter to the theater and to theater yeah. making. But it was, it was, it was that moment of, um, you know, Sylvia Llewellyn Davis uh, and, and the love of theater that, you know, her young son brings to her when that, Acting company act out the whole story. Yes, and, you know, in, in her bedroom because she, she's not well enough to go to the theater, uh, and um, you know, saying to Scott, you know, we can't. That moment has to be that has to be otherworldly. And then I'll never forget discovering Daniel Wurzel's um, work on on a YouTube link. Yeah, he's an air <laughs> sculpture artist. And and I remember we were sharing it back and forth amongst the team, and we thought, well, maybe this is it. Some somewhere this has to be in the show because this is like magical flying. You know, this is this is otherworldly. Absolutely. And um, we went out and went out to his studio. Um, I want to say it was in Brooklyn, and he had like a garage space where he had all these fans, and he was showing me all the different things that could be lifted into the air with fans like wow. a piece of fabric um little styrofoam um pieces you know that come in your package that well probably we don't do that anymore but you know the little <laughs> styrofoam peanuts of course. shove you know keep things shoved tightly in a package he would throw those down and they would all start swirling he even put gasoline down and lit a match and showed me how fire could go and then he threw glitter in and wow. um, it went wild in the air, and I thought, <laughs> okay, that's it, you know. That's... So wow. that that just became, you know, um, such a seminal moment for me of of theater magic, you know, how oh to God. how to bring that onto the stage and have that be um, 
a theatrical moment for the audience. Who knew that YouTube created one of the most magical pieces on Broadway? I never knew that, you know, that you discovered him off of YouTube. And it was so interesting too, like with Finding Neverland, like there was not like real flying. I mean, Josh flew for like a second, but he was stuck in the air. Yes, but exactly. all the rest, you know, you think of Finding Neverland, you think of Peter Pan, you're like, oh, they're going to fly. But like the only type of flying was like all lifting. And then we have that yes. moment as like the send off. It was so freaking beautiful. Every night there was just tears on everyone's eyes. Um, it, it was so, it, it was perfect. It, it was the absolute best way to, to, to deal with that scene and kind of send her off. Um, right. it, yeah, it's just, I love that part so much. I could go on about it for days, um, but that's, I, I never knew that's how it, that happened. I want to share one last story with you before I go. Um, the, I, we did this both in Finding Neverland and in Pippin. Um, but it's something that's stuck with me forever. Um, and that is your whole method of character development and having the actors come in to present a background story for your character. And, you know, I, I was told about this maybe my first like week of performances in Pippin after rehearsals that, you know, you were coming in and you were going to come work with us. And I was just like, okay, great. Yeah. And they were like, and prepare some background for your character. And I was like, my character is a clown. I was like, I'm so confused. Like, what am I supposed to do? Right. Um, and and then, of course, Theo, you have Theo too. And it was just like, you know, why was this person here with the circus? And what is he going through currently? And I'll never forget like that day of presentations where we literally went all around the theater. All the performers had their own space where they made their little presentation. And I was, I did mine right on center stage and I sat down on stage and I had everyone sit in the audience and I just started bawling my eyes out. Um, and it was one of the most um, fulfilling, but also terrifying moments in my life. Cause I don't really <laughs> cry around people often, mm. um, but it opened me up to, to a whole new world. And I just talked about how much I miss my family and having just one parent with me, which was Catherine, you know, that, that Theo yes. was having, you know, and, and that was what I was living through. And it was just so real for me and I'll never forget that moment. And then doing it again for finding Neverland and doing it for all the different characters, Peter, Michael, Jack, George, and now just like it's part of my life as an actor, you know, doing mm -hmm. it for every character, whether it's an audition or whatever. Um, and and I just want to say thank you for for teaching me that and making your actors do that, because I think it's such a special moment that you really just have to like it, it's just another layer of of preparation that I've never even considered until until you brought that in and how much it like impacted my character and my performance in both shows. So yeah, oh, I wanted wow. to touch well, on. I'm, I, I will never forget you. I, I to this day I remember your character uh, character <laughs> presentation you? for for Pippin. I do. You know, um, yeah, I do those on all my shows, and it's so funny because you know it, it there, there's um. As you say, there are questions I ask and sort of certain yeah. ingredients. So it's not a free-for-all, right? It has a real structure. Right. But what I love about it is um, I just think it gives everybody, it terrifies everyone just as <laughs> so you're not alone. Everyone's always like, ah, it feels like I'm back in grad school. I hate this. Why are you making us do it? And I always say, just trust me. There's no yeah. right or wrong answer. It's for you. It's really for you to, you know, jump off the cliff and sort of start to get into this, into who you are you know, into this transformational moment of who this character is. It's it's right. an imaginative exercise. But I love um I love the fact that 
it's not just intellectual, right? You have to physicalize it. You have to make choices. Yeah. And then you bring it in and you share it. So I think what's what I always love about it, it not only um, deepens an experience for an actor, like the way you said it did for you, but everybody watches everyone else's character presentations. Right. So everybody, you learn about each other as a company. And then all those histories that are presented become collective histories, right? For right. the for the material of the production, right? Yeah. So that everybody's seen everybody else's character presentation and now um, you can build off those with each other. So, right. yeah. It truly strengthens the cast as a cast and right. also the cast as scene partners, you know, and their characters um, and just understanding where everyone's coming from with each choice that's being made on stage. It's, it's brilliant. And, and I love that you do that. And it was, I'll never forget it. I, like literally one of the most out of body experiences ever, but um, <laughs> it was great. It was so good after I was just like, now I understand why this is a thing. Yeah. Well, Diane, I mean, I can't, I can't thank you enough. I, I know you, you got to go and I want to get you out of here. So I just want to say thank you for doing this and literally thank you for changing my life, literally, and, uh, and all the aspects of it. And you mean the world to me, seriously. And um, for you to give me your time out of your day, I, it, I really, really appreciate it. And uh, I know a lot of people, this has been like the most requested guest on the podcast. So I know a lot of people are going to love this. So thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, a total pleasure to speak with you and yeah. let's do it again. We can do a part two, if there, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, more, more questions and more time and, and, yeah. and more, more, more to explore. But um I'm grateful for the conversation. So uh, I would love to. Thank you. Oh, you're the best. Seriously. Thank you. So much. you definitely deserve to take a bow, Diane Paulus. <laughs> um, I always thank forget you. to say that, but yes, it's always. Thank you, Eli. Thank you. All oh right. my gosh. And now for me to say something that I've wanted to say in a very long time. Take about Diane Paulus. Oh my God. Seriously, it was just so incredible to be able to talk to her and, and kind of reflect on our time together because as we mentioned in the interview, our first time seeing each other after uh, Finding Neverland, which was, I don't even know anymore, probably six years ago, five or six years ago. No, it, it may even be more than that. Um, we probably closed in 2016. So yeah, six, seven years ago, going on seven, which is crazy. Um, so I hadn't seen her in six years in person. And then to be able to do this and uh, reconnect with her really and get to know a little bit about her and reflect on our time together, it, it was truly special for me. And um, hopefully you all enjoyed that and, and got to learn a little bit about Diane and her ways of directing and her way uh, of viewing things as an artist and a director. Her methods of getting to a performer and getting them to be vulnerable and to, to fully tell their story in such a brilliant way is second to none. Uh, truly, it's I've had I've worked with a lot of directors in my career and her directing style and everything in between is just something that I look up to so much. So uh, to be able to talk to her about that and about uh, her career in 1776 and growing up and all the things, it was so wonderful. So um, shout out to Diane. Uh, thank you again for doing this. And hopefully this isn't the last one because I, I could have talked to her and I know we can talk 
for hours. So Diane, again, thank you so much. And hopefully you all enjoyed that uh, little banter there between me and Diane. It was a quick one, but uh, it was probably the most exciting one for me of this year because she's the person that I've worked with the most probably of anybody on this podcast so far. So, uh, and then to, I'm a, just a big fan of her work in Waitress and Jagged Little Pill. I mean, those are some of my favorite musicals. So it was it was a real treat for me. And hopefully you all were able to to get that too. Anyways, I, I'm, I know I'm saying the same thing and, and I was just really excited and it was the perfect way, in my opinion, to wrap up our incredibly wonderful and, and historic, uh, this this year was one for the history books for sure. This 2022 for Take a Bow. I'm so thrilled that I have all of you listening at home and all of you coming back every week is so so cool and something that I never thought would uh, ever happen. So the fact that y'all are listening to this, I I appreciate you all so much. I hope that all of you had a wonderful, wonderful holiday, uh, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you may celebrate. And I hope that you all have an amazing new year. Uh, 2023 is is going to be a great year. We're manifesting it. We're going to uh, manifest the best one yet. And uh, yeah, and happy holidays for uh, anyone who still has holidays to celebrate uh, all the things. So thank you all again so much for listening. This year would not have been possible without all of you, literally, all of you guys listening. We have so much content coming in 2023. I'm so excited to share it all with you. We have YouTube videos out. Uh, we have an Ohio State Murders red carpet. Uh, we have a Some Like It Hot red carpet coming out today or tomorrow when you're listening to this on YouTube. Only on YouTube you can find that. Um, so go check those out. Those are so much fun. Uh, a lot of work goes into those. So please go support those as well. And uh, it, it's just more content and more honestly you may uh, like those guests better. I mean, they're they're huge stars coming to talk. So you may find it fun to see those kind of celebrities. And we play games on the red carpet in relation to what show we are at, which is very exciting. And it's always so fun to brainstorm those. So great stuff. Go check that out. Go check out the YouTube page, Take a Bow. Follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Take a Bow. Um, and those are both at Take a Bow Podcast. You can find both the YouTube and Instagram by searching at Take a Bow Podcast on all platforms. And uh, yeah, continue to come back. We're going to start 2023 off with a bang. Uh, we have a great guest lined up, so very exciting stuff. And uh, I, again, appreciate you all listening. Thanks for a wonderful 2022. And as I mentioned before, we are going to be posting a uh, 2022 uh, wrap up, like a uh, recap of the year, like best moments or best, uh, all of like kind of a acknowledging all of our guests and we're going to be doing something fun there and putting together a really cool videos so that we can all reflect and remember some of our favorite moments from 2022 that's going to be coming out on the youtube probably on new year's or new year's eve so stay tuned and uh, i appreciate you all again for listening and that's all i have so i'm going to stop talking and thank you all so much the next time i see you guys is going to be next year that's craziness. So without further ado, I'm just going to wish you all a happy New Year's. Have a great week and uh, happy 2023. Cheers to 2023, everyone. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. 
For this episode's curtain call, I would like to recognize a few people who also deserve to take a bow. This podcast would not be possible without the help from Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Kimberly Garris, and the team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Next in line to take a bow are our fabulous editors, Jessica Lauren, who edits the audio of the podcast that you just listened to, and Tessie Tokash, who edits the videos and visuals for this podcast. And how about a bow for our executive producer, Chris Griner? And our final bow are extra special to the patrons, Brian Thompson, Pat McNamara, the listeners of PCC, as well as all of the other patrons for their continued support. If you're interested in becoming a patron, go to patreon.com TAB. If you enjoyed this week's episode, make sure to subscribe on the platform that you are currently listening to this on, or go check out our YouTube where you can watch the episode. You can also subscribe, like, and comment on there as well. If you're more into the regular social media and want to follow us, you can do that at Take About Podcast across all social media platforms. The music of this podcast was made by Nikki Torsha and Cormac Collinon, and the logo was created by Giselle Bustos. And that wraps up this episode's Curtain Call. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and I can't wait to see you next week. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.